This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Well, hey, it is good to see you. We're continuing a message series that we've called Witness, Tell Your Story. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're exploring some of the different conversion stories in the New Testament. When people encounter Jesus, they become followers of him. And just kind of seeing what that teaches us about our stories and how God uses our story to invite others into an experience of new life with him. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 9. If you have a, a Bible with you, you can turn there. Uh, Matthew is one of the Gospels that tells the stories of Jesus, written by a man named Matthew. And this morning, we're actually reading the conversion story of Matthew. So it's, it's him telling us from his perspective what it was like when he first encountered Jesus and when Jesus called him. Um, and what you'll see is Matthew tells just a, a pretty simple story. He doesn't really uh, elaborate on it at all. He doesn't expand on it at all. He just gives us the facts, allows us to interpret them, and then basically uses his story to point to Jesus. So Matthew chapter 9, if you have a Bible, verse 9 is where we'll start. If not, it'll be here on the screens for you. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. Now, we'll work our way uh, through this story today and see what it teaches us about telling our stories to everyone, but primarily where we're going to start is what it teaches us about telling our stories and opening the doors of the kingdom to those that we have declared unlikable. Um, Now, I know it's not a very Christian thing to admit that there are people you don't like, But how many of you would would be bold enough to say, there's some people I don't like? Um, How many of you have ever had the the awful discovery of, in some places, you're the unlikable one? Yeah, like it's it's kind of alarming, isn't it? Because many of you, you're probably like me. Like I live with a, you know, it it might be just a, a completely false idea, but I just assume most people I meet are going to like me. And I think I can get along with almost anyone. And so when I discover at some point that there's someone who says, I don't like you, I always assume, well, it's because you don't know me. Like, come on, let's hang out a little bit. I, what is it you don't like about me? I'm sure you're wrong, and I'd be happy to tell you why. And, it, it, and then there's, there's that point in life where you've had it at moments. I know I've had it at moments where people have told me, no, I know you. I just don't like you. Right? And, and it hits a little bit different. And you, you start to understand if there are just some times in life people aren't going to like me. And then you understand there are some people in the world I'm just not going to like at all. Now, as Christians, you know, kind of culturally, at least in our kind of Midwest Southern experience, we have developed ways to talk about people we don't like so we can still feel like Christians while we talk about them. And so, so if there's people you don't like in the world, you'll call them misguided or uninformed. You know, like, oh, you know, yeah, that, that's just that's just who they are. Um, maybe sometimes if, if they do something to your face, they so, say something to your face. We have code words of like, you know what? I'll pray for you, which is just a really nice way of saying you absolutely disgust me. Like, I hate everything about you. And the only thing I know to do is pray for you. Um, sometimes there's a, there's a more southern, slightly less Christian version of that. And it's just bless your heart. 
right? And, and bless your heart is, is the, the just equivalent of like, I, we don't know what's wrong with you, but trust me, as soon as you leave, we're all going to talk about it. Uh, you know, and, and then there's the very Christian version of if you're gathering with some of your friends and there's somebody who's just really getting to you at the moment, um, you, you just kind of let your friends know like, hey, I think there's someone we really need to pray for. And then you spend 20 minutes telling them what an awful person this person is. And they did this and they did that and they said this and they wore that and they dressed this way and they talked to their kids that way. And at the end of your 20 minutes of ranting, there's a 10 second little prayer of Jesus help them. And then you just kind of move on with your life, right? And and so kind of over the past 20 or 30 years, at least in, in churches in America, in our kind of setting, this is how we've dealt with people we don't like. We just kind of talk in those terms. But what we've seen in the church is kind of what we've seen in our culture over the past couple of years of we are, we are now losing the concern with other people thinking we don't like them. And we're more open and willing to just look someone in the eye and tell them, I don't like you. I don't like anything about you. Right? My, my youth pastor, uh, he, he came in January. Some of you were here. His name's Billy. Billy and his wife have eight kids, I think. They have so many I've lost count, honestly. Uh, but th- so they have a bunch of kids. At one point, I think back when they only had six kids, so just a small little family, they were going on a, a trip and they were flying. And so most of the kids, it was their first time to fly. So, so his wife had one baby that, that she was holding. The other ones were there. And it was one of those like 6 a.m. flights. So they had to get up early. So all the kids, had, you know, they'd woke them all up at four o'clock in the morning. They were all grumpy. Everyone's under 12 years old. I mean, if you're a parent, you're already thinking, why'd they even take the trip. Like it's going to be a disaster. And so, so they get through security, they get in there, everybody's hungry, everybody's tired. And they had this little three-year-old boy and he just, he'd had enough. It was the middle of winter. They were going on a vacation to the beach. It was a gift from some friends. And the, the little boy was just having it. And, and his mom is holding the baby. And she's trying to tell him, like, just hang on, buddy. We're going to the beach. It's all going to be worth it. And he stuck his stubby little finger up at her in the middle of an airport. And he said, I don't like you. And I don't like that baby you're holding. And I wish I was at home naked and in the snow. And he just let him out, right? It was just this unvarnished. And, and now for a three-year-old, everybody's like, yeah, that's fine. And yet culturally, we're all kind of devolving back to three-year-olds. Where we have no problem looking at everyone in the world saying, I don't like you. I don't like that thing you're holding. And this is what I'd rather be doing. Right? That COVID and elections and all of these other things the last couple of years, the, the, poison, the poisonous nature of cultural confrontation has shifted into the church. And Christians have bought into this idea, well, as long as what I think is right, I can say it however I want to anyone I want to. And so we don't even bother disguising our language anymore. We just line up the object of our anger and we give them both barrels of hatred and rage at the same time. And then God has also blessed us with this gift of social media. So instead of you just losing your mind with a neighbor, we all get to watch it. Right? And we all get to see the venting that goes on to someone else. And, and it just kind of creates this, this culture of unlikability, where the list of people we don't like seems to grow at the speed of a tweet. And it's no longer about, hey, as long as we agree on the majority of things, we can hang out. But we're shifting more and more to, unless you are in 100% agreement with me on everything I hold valuable and, 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 and important to me in life, then I can't have anything to do with you. And sometimes our most hateful words are reserved for the people that we have 95% of our lives in agreement, but that last 5%, we've decided that's worth separating. 
And so we have increasingly isolated cultures. We have increasingly angry voices. And the idea of the unlikables, our list is growing bigger and bigger and bigger by the day of the people that we look at and say, I don't like you. I don't like what you're holding on to. And I wish I wasn't here with you at all. Now, with this kind of cultural moment, there are two biblical paths that we can take. One we'll reserve for another day, one we'll take for today. So the first one that we're going to reserve for, for another day is stop it, right? Just stop it, stop it, stop it. Don't do that. That's not what Christians do. We'll come back to that maybe later in the summer. The path that we're going to take today is actually telling you embrace that, that feeling you have towards people who are unlikable. I like, just go ahead. It's okay for now. Just go ahead and feel it. We'll let the scriptures correct us in a little bit. But for now, go ahead and feel it. Picture their face, their stupid, stupid face, right? Just picture their name, like listen to their voice in your head and let your skin crawl a little. Like you all, I know some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but the rest of you, you're right there with me. And in that space, you're ready to hear the story of Matthew. Because in Matthew chapter 9, it's one of these stories that, that we read it and think, well, there's nothing really dramatic about that. Matthew had a job. Matt, Jesus shows up. Matthew follows Jesus. The same way that Jesus calls the fishermen off the beach, he calls Matthew out of the tax collector's booth. That's, that's not really a big deal at all. Yet, what I want you to understand is the same way you feel towards those people you don't like is, is just a, a little inkling of how everyone felt about Matthew and people like him. So Matthew as a tax collector in first century Israel is much different than a tax collector today. And some of you might have friends or family members who work for the IRS. And while you probably tease them relentlessly about their job, you don't really look at them with this deep sense of, of shame and disgust. But for Matthew, his role as a tax collector wasn't just a career choice. It was a lifestyle he had chosen that put him at odds with his countrymen and with everyone like him. So Israel, in the, the first century, they had been conquered by the Roman Empire. Rome came in. They brought their army. They set up their governments. The Jews were given a, a degree of independence and autonomy, but they lived under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so one of the things that Rome did in all of their conquered lands was they imposed imperial taxes that were paid from these people back to Rome so that they could rule everywhere and, and continue to have all the wealth they needed to do it. But Rome was brilliant in this. They would assign local tax collectors in each of their conquered lands. Now, these people, not just in Israel, but probably all over the Roman Empire, were hated by their fellow countrymen. For Matthew to take a job as a tax collector was for him to turn his back on his friends, family, and neighbors and to live for the will and the benefit of the Roman Empire that has conquered his people. He's viewed as a traitor. He's viewed as a sellout. He's viewed as one who values wealth above all else. And Rome chose men like Matthew for a very specific reason. They chose them because they knew the culture. They knew the language. They knew the customs, and most importantly, they knew the economy. And so Matthew, as a local, would have known this is about how many fish get caught in this lake at this time of year. This is about how big of a harvest you can expect from that size of a field in this location. This is about how much this person will make in their job and that person will make in their job, which all was very important to Rome because it meant the local tax collector could make sure the local people were not cheating Rome out of what was rightfully theirs. 
So Matthew is using his knowledge of his people. He's using his knowledge of the land to squeeze from them the money they have worked so hard to earn and send it back to the government that's oppressing them. And I don't know what the modern equivalent of that would be. Perhaps it would be the way, the way a Ukrainian soldier would view his neighbor who is actively working with the Russians this morning. But it's, it's just, it would be that, that, that thought of, man, you're not just hurting us, you're literally selling us out. You're signing our death warrant. This is how Matthew was viewed. But there's another level to that. Matthew wasn't just viewed as a traitor to his people and a traitor to his family, but as an Israelite, as one who possessed the promises of God in the promised land. When Matthew helps a foreign enemy oppress God's people in God's land, he's seen as one who has broken covenant even with the Lord. Matthew's turned his back on everything that proud Jewish men have stood for for centuries. And he's done it to make money. As a tax collector, they were responsible for obviously collecting the taxes Rome required, but tax collectors would build their wealth by adding an extra percentage on top of what Rome had required. So for Matthew, let's say, I mean, just for the, the sake of simplicity, that Rome charges a 10% tax, Matthew's going around and telling people, actually, it's 15%, right? And, and so he's going to send 10 back to Rome, and he's going to keep five for himself. And if anyone tries to push back and say, no, that's not it, we're not paying that, Matthew has a detachment of Roman soldiers who are there to encourage people. The tax is what Matthew says it is. And then he shares the excess with the Roman soldiers, and they are all engaged. And as much as Rome tried to avoid the cycle of corruption, it happened again and again and again throughout their empire. And so when Jesus calls Matthew, he's not just calling another man with a job. It's not just the same thing as calling Peter off the lakeshore. This is a wildly different calling meant to send a message to Matthew to the other disciples of Jesus, to the religious leaders, and to everyone who will follow Jesus from that point on. And the first lesson that we learn from Jesus' calling of Matthew is that Jesus loves the people you hate. Right, so, so that person we thought of earlier, that person that just, you know, you don't want anything to do with them. You don't want to be around them. Matthew's story reminds us the people that we think deserve our hate the most, the people that we think deserve to be separated from God, the people that we think are too far gone, have offended the Lord too much, have embraced too dark of a lifestyle. The message of the gospel is Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. And Jesus is moving toward them. When Jesus shows up that day to call Matthew, when he turns his attention towards the tax collector booth, it's likely the disciples expected a reprimand. They probably hoped, hey, we've seen Jesus. We've started to get some hints and clues of who he is. We hope he's going to unleash the fury of heaven against Matthew. We hope he's going to call him out in such a way that tax collectors everywhere resign their posts, give it up, and go do something else. They're hoping Jesus is going to tell them, how dare you do this? Why would you even think about compromising in this way? Who do you think you are? You've turned your back on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've turned your back on the story of God who brought us into the promised land. They expect all this and more. And yet Jesus looks at Matthew and simply says, come follow me. And in that moment, it's this shocking realization 
to the disciples, to the religious leaders, and for us. That the people we think are outside of the kingdom, Jesus is literally dying to bring into the kingdom. That the ones we call unlovable, he loves. That the ones we call unlikable, he welcomes in. And so it's a, a challenge for me. It's a challenge for you of those people that we're thinking, I don't, I don't want them here. Right? And I know you have someone in your life that you hope God saves their soul. You just hope it's not at Christian Chapel. Like, Lord, save them, but please send them somewhere else. Right? You, I, I'm ashamed. I'll tell you. Right? Okay, I'm ashamed to admit this. I once worked with a person that I knew did not know Jesus, and I regularly invited them to a different church in town. I would, I would tell them all the time. I, I mean, I'd like to tell you I was, young. I, was in, I was a seminary student training to be a pastor. And I just thought, I, you know, I've already got you in my life 40 hours a week. This church across town, that pastor is so good. I've got some friends that go there. They would ask me, why don't you go there? I'm like, you should just go check it out. It's really good. You know, it's, it's really, it's where you need to be. It's where God, like, we, we all have some of that in us. And what Matthew's story confronts is that idea that we get to choose who's in the kingdom around us. Because Jesus is just saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm here for everybody including the most unlikable that you could possibly imagine. And so it confronts us with the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work everywhere in the world, drawing everyone into a relationship with Jesus. And especially when it comes to the people we don't like, our choice is to either work with the Holy Spirit or to work against the Holy Spirit. There is no middle ground for us. And what Matthew's story is reminding us is, hey, wherever Jesus goes, he's going to call men and women into a relationship with him. And our job is to join with him in that process and to embrace it with him. Now, Jesus, when he calls Matthew, it's also an example that he shows up in unexpected places. So it says Jesus calls Matthew. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and called him to follow him. Now, there are, there are other ways Jesus could have worked the calling of Matthew that wouldn't have been quite so scandalous. But Jesus picks the scene of the crime, the tax collector's booth, to call Matthew to him. He could have waited till Matthew was at home. He could have tried to catch him in the street. He could have looked for him in the market. He could have sent a disciple back later in the day to say, hey, the teacher wants to see you. Will you come out of the booth and meet him over here by the lake? He could have done all that, but Jesus doesn't. He goes to the scene of the crime, the heart of the scandal, to announce to Matthew, I know exactly who you are, I know exactly what you're doing, and I'm here for you. It eliminates the questions on the behalf of the disciples. If they have encountered Matthew in the marketplace later and Jesus said, come follow me, perhaps Peter and John whispered to each other, I bet Jesus doesn't know who he is. I bet Jesus doesn't know what he does. Maybe somebody tries to pull Jesus aside later and say, Lord, I know you're, you're trying to build your group, but that guy's a tax collector. You probably don't want him with us. But Jesus, he eliminates all this. In fact, he chooses to call Matthew at the tax collector's booth to create the scandal, to highlight the fact that I know exactly who he is. I know why you all hate him. And now watch this. Matthew, come follow me. Right? It, it's, it's just, it's, it's the brilliance of Jesus. But as we read it, it's also an encouragement to you and I today. Because when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, he doesn't say, hey, Matthew, uh, come out here so I can talk to you. Hey, Matthew, get away from the Roman soldiers. Hey, Matthew, go pay back all the money that you've stolen from your people. 
hey, Matthew, why don't you repent a little and then you can come follow me? Jesus comes to him while Matthew is in the middle of his day helping persecute the people of God in the land of God. And Jesus simply says, come follow me. Again, it's a reminder to us that when Jesus comes to us at our lowest moments and our darkest hours, he's doing it to call us out. And so, so it doesn't matter what other people might call you. Jesus still calls you. Right? He's still working. He sees exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you're doing. And yet, for, for some reason, whether it's the influence of churches or culture or Christians getting it wrong, we've somehow bought into this idea of before I can follow Jesus, I've got to get my life in order. Right? I've, I've, got to, I've got to make it a little bit better. It's why, why some of us, like if we sign up to work out with a personal trainer in January each year, three weeks before we go, we start trying to eat a little better and work out a little bit. Right? Like you've signed up to go with the person who's going to help you, but you want to show up as good as you possibly can. It's why others of you, if, if you are, are fortunate enough to have somebody who cleans your house, you do a little cleaning before they come. It's absolutely insane. <laughs> absolutely insane. I don't understand it one bit. Like, I've got a mother-in-law who loves to clean when she comes to our house. And I'm always trying to tell Angie, like, just leave it. Your mom will do it. It's great. She loves it. That's what she's here for, right? She loves to do that stuff. Just let her do it. But, but Angie can't do it, and you can't do it. Why? Because there's that thought of, like, no, I've got I've to at least put in some effort. I've got to show them I'm serious. I've got to do a little bit to show them that, it, you know, like, you, before you meet with the tutor, you do a little extra studying because you don't want to look as dumb as you actually are. I've got, to, I've got to at least pretend I know what they're talking about, All right? Before you meet with the accountant, you try to get the receipts in order, even though, you know, I have no idea. Why, why'd you bring me a Wendy's receipt? You're like, I, I don't know. I just, I was trying to, just trying to get some stuff. I, I don't, we, we just do this. And then we carry that over into our relationship with Jesus. And he shows up and says, come follow me. And we're like, yep. In a minute, got some things I need to clean up first. Got some stuff I need to sort out. I got, got a little addiction that I need to, let me, let me kind of knock the rough edges off, Jesus. Let me, let me try to keep some of the promises that I've been making to you. And yet when Jesus calls Matthew, he's not waiting for Matthew to do anything. He's coming to Matthew at the scene of the crime, his lowest moment, says, just come follow me. This is Jesus showing up in the brothel and calling not just the sex worker, but the sex trafficker to follow him. It's Jesus showing up in the crack house, not just for the addict, but for the dealer. It's Jesus showing up in the shadiest, darkest, most shameful points of your life and not saying, hey, can you clean that up so we can talk? But just saying, hey, I know exactly who you are and I know exactly what you're doing. So just come follow me. And so if others call you the addict, Jesus is still telling you, yeah, but I'm here to give you new life. If others call you the screw up, the train wreck, the one who can never get it right, the one that's the source of everybody's pain and problems, Jesus still comes and says, yeah, but I'm calling you my son and my daughter. Just come follow me. And then the, the last thing we see in, in Matthew's story is that when Jesus shows up and says, come follow me, Matthew just does it. And he understands Jesus is bringing new life for him. And then Jesus is always going, to bring, always going to bring new life for those around him as well. So Jesus shows up at the tax collector's booth. It, it causes a bit of an outrage, probably among the disciples and among the, the religious leaders. They, they see Matthew get out of the tax collector's booth. They see him walking towards Jesus. And what they're seeing is an example of what it means to respond to Jesus when he shows up in your life. So when Jesus calls you out, your only question is, will you obey or will you disobey? Will you follow or will you stay where you are? 
There's no real middle ground. And, and so Matthew just gets up and he follows Jesus. Now, for you and I, you know, we have the, the benefit of hindsight. We're, we're literally reading from the gospel that Matthew wrote so we know his story turns out well. But on that day, this is a shocking decision that Matthew makes. I mean, just, just imagine that you're, you're one of the, the Roman soldiers who's standing there that day. And, and you've helped Matthew institute taxes. You've, you've been personally enriched from the schemes that he's able to work. You know the wealth that he's accrued. You know the lifestyle that he enjoys. You know the way that people talk about him, but you also know he doesn't care because he's living a life at a much higher level than any of them are. And then one day this, this ragtag-looking teacher shows up. And he's got this odd collection of men, some of whom you recognize as local fishermen that you've charged taxes before. Others you've seen throughout the community. And as a Roman soldier, there is nothing particularly impressive about these men. And you're maybe used to Jewish people coming by and having some smart comments for Matthew as he hangs out in the tax collector's booth. You've heard the things they call him. You've heard the way that they talk about him. But they, they always do it from a distance. and They won't get too close because you're there and you're the Roman soldier to kind of repel them backwards. And yet on this day, this kind of motley crew of guys show up. And, and from a distance, there's one who clearly is their leader. And he turns his attention to Matthew and just says, hey, come follow me. And to your shock, you see Matthew lay down his ledgers get out of the booth, close the door behind him, and begin to walk towards Jesus. But in that moment, nothing makes sense about Matthew's decision. He's turning his back on a life of security, a life of wealth, a life of privilege, to follow this itinerant preacher that no one really knows where he's come from or what he's doing. Now, for you and I on the other side, it makes tremendous sense. Matthew's going to watch Jesus feed the multitudes with just a few pieces of bread and a few fish. Matthew's going to watch Jesus open the eyes of blind men and open the ears of deaf men. He's going to watch him raise a little girl from the dead, call Lazarus out of the tomb, and drive evil spirits out of all kinds of people. Matthew's going to witness Jesus walking on the water, Jesus calming the storm. He's going to witness the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to be there when Jesus ascends into heaven. He's going to be in the upper room when the Holy Spirit is poured out. He's going to be one of the leaders of the early church. He's going to be one of those that writes the story of Jesus that you and I still read today. But on that day in the tax collector's booth, Matthew doesn't know any of that. All he knows is Jesus has spoken and there's something inside of him that says, I have to go. I cannot stay here. When you encounter Jesus, you're going to have your own version of a tax collector's booth kind of moment where you're just going about your day and Jesus shows up and he says, hey, come follow me. And at that point, it's your point of decision. Am I going to go or am I going to stay? Am I going to obey or am I going to disobey? But when Jesus speaks, it always creates a moment of decision. And Matthew models for us. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't ask what his future might look like. He doesn't ask, well, what about all the wrong things that I've done? He just gets up and follows Jesus. And then he goes home. And he's decided at some point along the way, everybody I know needs to know Jesus. So Matthew throws a party. Well, when you're a shady person, 
Do you know who your friends are? There are other shady people, right? So if some of you are here and you're like, why are my friends so shady? It's because you're shady, right? Shady attracts shady, right? Why are my friends so violent? Well, probably because you hit them all the time. So they hit back. Why do my friends lie all the time? Because you lie to them. Like we, we just kind of attract people who are like us. This was no different for Matthew. He would have been completely ostracized from his community. No righteous person would want anything to do with Matthew and would never come into his home. But Matthew, he's a wealthy person. He probably has a nice home. He's got some good food. And so he encounters Jesus and he leaves his job behind. And his first response is, "Uh, Jesus, you want to come over for dinner? And do you mind if I invite some friends? And so he throws a party. And his party is filled with people like him. Tax collectors and sinners, people who are far from righteous, people who are far from the requirements of the law, people who are living on the fringes of a society that values obedience to the law above all else. And Jesus goes and joins the party. And the religious leaders by this time, they they have learned or they're starting to learn at least not to confront Jesus directly because it always goes bad for them. Like they've tried to pick some fights with him up to this point and he always turns it back in a way that they kind of have to tuck their tail and go home. And so this time they know we're not going to go at Jesus. Let's just talk to the disciples. So they come to the disciples and they're saying, hey, why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know what they do? And Jesus overhears it and interrupts them and says, hey, hey, you need to understand. I haven't come for the righteous, but for the sinners. It's not that sick that need a doctor, or it's not that healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. That's what I'm here for. That's why I've come. Jesus' whole model of ministry is he comes for sick people and doesn't tell them, hey, pull it together and come up here so you can follow me. But he meets them at their point of need in their darkest hour. And when he changes their life, they immediately begin to tell their circles around them. And those circles are always filled with other people who are just like them. And what we see in the early church and what we see throughout church history is the church work of evangelism always grows fastest and is most effective on the fringes, right? And you can probably think of this in your own life. When you first became a follower of Jesus, you were surrounded by people who were just like you living without him. And as they saw the difference in your life, it created opportunities for you to tell them, let me tell you about where this peace comes from. Let me tell you about where this joy comes from. Let me tell you how these addictions were broken. Let me tell you how my marriage is different. Let me tell you how how my whole outlook on life has changed. And they listened because they were where you used to be. And then the longer you follow Jesus, you start to hang out with more and more Christian people. Ideally, because all of those other people with you are following Jesus with you now too. But for most of us, the longer we follow Jesus, the more our circles include a whole lot of people who are also following Jesus. And it's a little harder for us to build relationships. And it's harder maybe for us to remember what our life was like before him. And so Jesus has always built his church on the edges. We see it all through church history. We see it at Christian Chapel right now. The spaces where our church grows the fastest is with people who are new to faith in Jesus Christ because they're discovering new life. They're being completely transformed and they can't help but talk about what they've seen, heard, and experienced with others around them. And as they do, it's attractive and others come and follow. And so what's, what's Matthew teaching us? He's teaching us our job is to obey Jesus, let our lives be changed by him, and then just throw some parties for other people who need to hear about him. 
Open your home. Open your life. Take people to lunch. Enjoy trips with them. Do all these things. When Jesus saves you, he pulls you out of your old life of sin, but he doesn't necessarily pull you out of all your old relationships. He leaves you there as a changed person. He leaves you there as a different person. You leave the sin behind, but you don't leave the people behind. It's a a reminder to us that when Jesus saves us, he doesn't erase our story He redeems it. He doesn't come and say, hey, I want you to forget everything you used to be and everyone you used to hang out with and everything you used to do, and I want you to completely change and cut them off. He says, no, 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 you're going to be there, but now you're there as light and darkness. Now you're there as an example of what I can do. Now you're there to open your home so that I can meet with them as well. And as you do, what you find is Jesus always shows up and he always shares that same new life, that same hope with others. Again, what Jesus does for you, he always wants to do through you. Matthew had discovered new life. He discovered hope. He discovered salvation. And he couldn't help but tell all of his friends, hey, come over and meet this man. Come over and listen to what he's done. There are so many spaces in the the Bible where we're just given little kind of summaries of stories. And this is definitely one of those. I mean, don't, don't don't you want to know what happened to the people who were at the house that day? What happened to those other tax collectors and sinners? Because surely, if if the presence of Jesus was enough to cause Matthew to leave his booth and follow him, surely there were a few more that day who would have made the same decision. Were there people at that party who would later sit at the side of the lake and receive some of the, the food that goes out to the thousands? Were there other tax collectors who decided, you know what, I'm leaving this behind as well? Were there other sinners who said, I I see what I used to do, but Jesus, you have a better way? Were there people in that party who were there when Jesus was resurrected? Were there people there who were gathered outside the mountain on Jerusalem when he ascended? Were there some there that day who maybe were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? Were there those there that were leaders in the early church? I, I think it's safe for us to imagine there were at least a few at Matthew's party who became lifelong followers of Jesus. Because Matthew was willing to understand what God has done for me, he now can do through me. It's the same reminder that you and I receive today. We're going to finish by receiving communion today. Hopefully you uh, grabbed the elements as you came in. If not, they're at all the doors by the exits. You can grab those. But communion is a reminder to us that God can take the absolute worst thing in the world... And he can transform it and use it to achieve the best thing in the world. When Jesus is crucified, it's an example of the perfect son of God bearing our sin and our guilt. It's an example of what happens when God allows the full force of wrath to be poured out on a person. And then Jesus, he suffers, he dies, he's buried, and all hope seems lost, and it seems like the story is over. And yet, we live on the other side of the resurrection, and so we know it's just three days And then Jesus rises from the dead. The tomb is empty and new life is available to all of us. This morning as we receive communion, it's a reminder to us that what Jesus did then, he is still doing now. He's still working in the darkness. He's still overcoming sin. He's still defeating death and he is still sharing new life with us. So no matter where you find yourself in the story of Matthew, if you feel like him stuck at the tax collector's booth with all of your sin and shame surrounding you, 
Maybe you feel like one of the disciples or the religious leaders who aren't real sure Jesus should reach out to people like that. Wherever you are in the story, communion reminds us that Jesus died for all of us and new life is available to all of us. So as we receive it this morning, my prayer is that you also will receive the new life of Christ and what he has done for you, you'll begin to let him do through you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you that because of your work on the cross, we are forgiven and we are made whole. And so Jesus, we come once again to ask you to forgive us of every sin, to cleanse us from every unrighteous act, thought, and behavior, and to restore us to our place as your sons and your daughters. Jesus, will you bring new life into each one of us, to our hearts, our minds, and our relationships. May you transform us and remake us in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you take the bread with me? And the cup. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.